This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Please take a moment, check out my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett, Strange Planet, the website, strangeplanet.ca. And a a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters, Tim Sullivan, Deep Paul, and Jacob Ribichuk in our uh, Star Chamber tier. Thank you very much, Tim, Deep Paul, and Jacob. Uh, your, uh, Your generous support means so much to us here at Strange Planet. Biblical prophecy expert and author Ryan Peterson is here for the two hours, the full two hours to discuss the war between humans and Nephilim bloodlines. And we'll be exploring what he calls incompletely understood biblical passages about giants and why he believes these angelic beings were 100 percent real. Uh, Ryan is a biblical researcher, a writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology He received his B.A. from the University of Rochester and uh, his journalism degree from Columbia University Law School. Or sorry, his J.D., not his uh, journalism degree, his J.D. from uh, Columbia University. He resides in the New York City area with his family, and he is the author of Judgment of the Nephilim and his new one, The Final Nephilim. Ryan, welcome to the program. How are you? Richard, doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to try and move quickly here. So I, I want to talk about this idea of uh, the two bloodlines, these two parallel bloodlines, the two seeds that we hear about in Genesis 3.15. Tell, t- you call this the ultimate prophecy as well, Genesis 3.15. Talk to me about that in the two bloodlines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it, it really goes back to, again, as you said, Genesis 3.15, and we look at the Garden of Eden. Of course, everyone knows that account after Adam and Eve sinned. When God punished the serpent, the devil, he made an amazing prophecy, basically telling the devil that he, would put that he God, would put enmity or war between two seeds, the seed of the woman, meaning Eve, an ancestor, a descendant of Eve, and the seed of the serpent. And so... 
in my first book, in Judgment of the Nephilim, I really go into detail about the seed of the woman, the Messiah. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah and the significance of that from the fallen angelic perspective, because this provided Satan a target. Now, knowing that prophecy, that his 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 defeat would come by the hand of a, of a human child born one day, a son who would be born one day, he set his sights on either destroying that Messiah, corrupting him, or preventing his birth. And so this is what leads us to the events of Genesis chapter 6, where uh, you know, once the human population expanded and got to be fruitful and multiply and the human population grew, the amount of potential messiahs, the potential, you know, uh, you know, uh, really expanded. And Satan needed a large scale attack on the human race and human genetics. And this is why we see Genesis 6, a faction of the fallen angels, the sons of God, taking human women as wives, marrying them and fathering the Nephilim, half fallen angelic, half human hybrids who overran the world with violence in the days of Noah and who corrupted human genetics to try and make us something other than image bearers of God, other than human, to prevent the birth of a human messiah. So oh, the seed of the yeah. woman is Mary has Jesus, but yes. So does that does that mean that the that that Satan also had a child? That he will, and that's the thing is that you know he, theologians, Bible teachers, uh, pastors, almost with universal consensus agree that the seed of the woman in Genesis three fifteen is. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the literal being, the person born from Mary. And so by the same interpretation, the verse is also saying that the devil is going to have his own seed. And I believe that seed of the serpent will be the Antichrist, who will be the final Nephilim. And that is the theme of my new book, that the final Nephilim is the Antichrist, who, of course, will rule over Earth for three and a half years during the Great Tribulation. Okay, so let's talk about prophecy and why prophecy is important. And, and you talk about Isaiah 46, how important that is, because it really tells us everything we need to know about the existence of God. Absolutely. In Isaiah 46, God makes an amazing proclamation. He, he's rebuking the Israelites and telling them that if you want to know that I'm truly God, Yahweh, El Elyon, the Most High, above the fallen angels, above the demons— the way you can know that is by prophecy. God really rests his name on prophecy. And in Isaiah 46, he says that I have declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that will come to pass. So God, God puts his own deity and his own reputation on the line on the basis of prophecy. And in that, we see two things, the importance of prophecy, but two, that God is letting us know that we can understand end times prophecy from looking at the earliest events in scripture as well. So this idea that the things that hath been, it is that which shall be. So uh, this cyclical nature, um, repetition, constant repetition, you call it ripples through time. Um, that's, you know, what's the other, uh, the, there's nothing new under the sun. So everything exactly. is repeating in the Bible. Exactly. And right. Ecclesiastes chapter one, there's no new thing under the sun. And, and just as you said, the thing that the Bible, God is telling us that the earliest events in Scripture will repeat. We talk, Sometimes we talk about a prophecy that might have a double fulfillment. 
But I believe that prophecies and types and shadows in Scripture have multiple fulfillments through Scripture. And the, you know, the examples I give, there are multiple types and foreshadows of Jesus Christ in Scripture. We see it with Adam. Jesus, Jesus is called the last Adam. So Adam himself uh, is a type of Christ. Joseph, Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage to the promised land, Joshua. And so God repeats these events and so that to foreshadow and tell us to, to prove that from advance, from from the earliest time, from the foundation of the world, he knows the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. And so I even refer to it as quantum repetition sometimes as well, the way that prophecies will repeat and ripple through time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to. Yeah. I want to jump ahead to, to quantum um, quantum superpositions, you call it. So. This concept of the beginning is the end. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. Almost th- two things happening simultaneously. And, and you say this converges with quantum physics. So talk to me about how science through quantum physics confirms how God describes himself. Absolutely. So quantum physics, which is the the study of the subatomic world of subatomic particles, you think of protons, electrons, neutrons, photons, the particles that make up light and matter itself. There is a concept in quantum physics called quantum superposition, which is basically saying that a particle, a subatomic particle can exist in two states at the same time. I mean, an electron can be spinning it up and spinning down at the same time. And as, as complex as that sounds, I believe Scripture has been revealing that about the nature of God. You gave one example already when Jesus says that he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end at the same time. And something I really wanted to emphasize in the final Nephilim is that God exists outside of time. And when you think about that, when you think about that, it's how prophecy makes sense, how God can, of course, know the end from the beginning, because he exists in multiple times at simultaneously. And even even when you think about Jesus during his first advent on earth, he would say things like, I and the father are one. Even though, you know, they, they, God, the Father was in heaven, he sometimes would pray to the Father in heaven. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The concept of the Trinity itself is an example of quantum superposition, that they are three separate beings, yet they are one. And so I think that it's just amazing that just now the scientific world is just starting to peek into the spiritual realm and understand and starting to understand concepts that the Bible has explained for millennia. There's even a thought experiment in quantum physics called Schrodinger's cat, named after a famous quantum physicist that postulates an experiment where a cat is dead and alive at the same time, which of course Jesus says that he was dead and is alive evermore. And he was that one, he's the one that was and is and is to come. So I think there's an amazing convergence taking place. That's another sign that we're racing towards the end times. Brian Peterson is uh, with us, and his latest is The Final Nephilim, uh, previously, of course, Judgment of the Nephilim. That's the name of the uh, the website as well, judgmentofthenephilim.com. And um, remember, judgment with the – it's the American spelling. Uh, up here in Canada, we add that extra E in there, but the American spelling, J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T, and then of the Nephilim.com. And I've also linked up to Ryan's website at strangeplanet.ca. So just click on Ryan's name there in the uh, show description, and that'll take you right there. This idea of God existing outside time, 
So that uh, 10,000 of our days is, is uh, or is it 10,000 years? Ten, no, 10,000 days is one day for, for God, right? Exactly. And, and this idea that there's also something in the, uh, and I'm trying to relate this back to quantum uh, physics as well. There's something in the Bible about the heavens unscrolling. Does that sound familiar? Sure, the heavens will roll up as a scroll. You know that they actually you know, that they that at the time of the great tribulation, when God is obviously revealing Himself supernatural to the world, that they will. It says the heavens will roll up as a scroll, and I, I I talk about in the book about this concept of the scroll of time. That time in the that time from the divine perspective, from the biblical perspective, rather than being linear is really like a scroll, and I call it the scroll of time, where events keep cycling over and over and over again. And I even look to what I think are four critical events from ancient biblical history that really help us decipher and decode the complex prophecies of Revelation. Like we already talked about Genesis 3.15, Genesis 6 in the days of Noah, the days of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Exodus. And I think what God is showing, again, is that these prophecies, these events, will prophetically ripple through time. And then yeah, I just want, uh, you know, I want to pursue that, those, those four events that will help us, uh, or, or how they foreshadow end times uh, judgment, but also help us sort of make sense of revelation. But I just wanted to add one more thing with those uh, those the references to scrolls and I'm maybe I'm reaching too far here, but getting back to the idea of quantum uh, mechanics and so forth, it almost sounds like a reference to hyper dimensions. Yeah. And I think, and I think in a way um, we kind of see that play out, I think in terms of the dimension between the spiritual and the, and the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And when you think about it this way, you know, Jesus pointed, again, when we talk about this idea of the scroll of time, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And when you think about the days of Noah, what made it unique, among many other things, is that the, the dimensions were merged. The barrier that exists now, what I call the veil between the heavenly dimension and the earthly dimension, was open. You had angels marrying women. You had Adam and Eve who could speak to God in the Garden of Eden. When they were being judged, Adam and Eve were standing with the devil, all speaking to God and being judged for their sin in the Garden of Eden. So I think in terms of those dimensions being colliding, interdimensionality, I think the same thing is going to happen in the Great Tribulation, that once again, the dimensions are now going to merge and be open to each other. We will have in Revelation 9, we see that there are angels who are released from the abyss. You have Revelation 12, where Satan himself is cast down to earth, and the rest of the fallen angels are cast down to earth. They're expelled, they're evicted from heaven, and, and the Bible says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So we as humans that are alive in the Great Tribulation are going to be able to, be able to see angels openly manifesting before us, like in the days of Noah. Uh, so the... Um in the days of Noah, the fallen angels, as you say, the ones who were eating, drinking, given in marriage, uh, this will repeat in the end times. Um, so what then, what was the, the purpose of the Genesis 6 invasion when uh, fallen angels came down at Mount Hermon and they, 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 they took the daughters of, of men? 
Incidentally, is it your um, belief that they took those daughters of men by force? Uh, were they willingly given over to the fallen angels? Was there perhaps some sort of an exchange of knowledge in return for? Yeah, exactly. I think I, I, I lean more towards it being more of a transaction. And I have a chapter in, in, in uh, Judgment of the Nephilim where I talk about the first family of the Nephilim. And I think Genesis chapter 4 um, reveals some interesting details, particularly about the descendants from Adam through the line, the lineage of Cain, who, of course, was the first son of Adam and Eve and who slew his brother Abel. And I talk about how if you look in the, if you look in the lineage of Cain, it has what I call a special reference where in the Bible you normally see sometimes three generations described in one verse. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and so on. But then certain infamous figures in in, in antiquity are given multiple verses. So I think the Bible is drawing us to those people. And one figure in particular is Lamech, the Lamech who is the wicked Lamech through the lineage of Cain, the seventh generation from Adam through Cain. And in his family, what I talk about is that what you see there is it describes three of his sons, uh, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. In this family, you see a technological explosion. Jabal was the father of animal husbandry and tent making. Jubal was the inventor of instruments in the ancient world. And then you have Tubal-Cain, who was the father of blacksmithing, blacksmithing and metallurgy, making weapons and tools. So all they had all this knowledge given to them. And there's an interesting detail that says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And when you look to ancient sources, the belief uh, for centuries in the church is that Nema was offered as the first bride to the fallen angels and the first mother of a Nephilim giant. I mean, this divine exchange, this exchange of knowledge for a woman's hand in marriage. You mentioned Tubal Cain, uh, who had the ability to do uh, blacksmithing and so forth. There, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but there, the one of the maybe it's in the Bible. I don't know, but the legend is that he forged this spear from a meteorite that had crashed to Earth. The iron in the meteorite. He forged this spear. And that spear ended up being the spear of Longines or the spear of destiny that was used by the Roman centurion to pierce Christ's side on the cross. Cross. That's kind of a, um, an aside. But is that true? Uh, I've definitely heard that. I mean, that's not, that's not in scripture, but that's definitely a part of the legends around Tubal-Cain. And also another interesting fact that's not in the scripture, but also lends to this idea is that the God, the Roman God Vulcan, is believed to be derived from Tubal-Cain. In fact, the name Vulcan is just a derivative of the name Tubal-Cain. So uh, certainly he played a, a, he was a, so he was worshipped in pagan culture. So he was someone who was a significant figure in antiquity uh, for many reasons. So it wouldn't surprise me if a weapon he made, uh, at forged at that time, was treated as a cherished relic and eventually ended up in significant uh, role in history. Right. Everyone who's supposedly possessed the Spear of Destiny uh, was unstoppable. Charlemagne uh, possessed it. Napoleon, I believe, possessed it. Um, I don't know if if um, Hitler um, uh, possessed it uh, or a copy of it, but it's rumored that he did, and that, it, that at one time it was housed in a in a museum in uh, in Vienna. Um, we've got about just about a minute here before we uh, head on into a break at the bar. Um, the next break. And I just want just a quick uh, clarification. Um, Cain, some people believe that Cain was 
the seed of of Satan. That was, you know, the the unforgivable sin that Eve made in the Garden of Eden, and that that that's how we get these two lines. Um, what are your thoughts? Is Cain the seed of of Satan? No, I don't believe Satan's had a seed yet, and I believe Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. And Eve even says her testimony after he's born is, I've gotten a man from the Lord. So I think that that kind of supports biblically that he was a born out of that, that their marriage as opposed to being the, the actual son of the devil. Not to right. mention God forgiving him and giving a, putting, putting a mark on him to protect him. You know, God protected Cain after he banished him from Eden. So I don't think God would do that for the seed of the serpent. All right, we'll take a, a quick time out. Ryan Peterson stays with us. Judgment of the Nephilim and his latest, The Final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Ryan Peterson, biblical researcher, writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. And uh, his books are Judgment of the Nephilim and his latest final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com is uh, the website. Uh, incidentally, there is a um, there's about an hour long documentary that accompanies the book. It's kind of a nice primer uh, for the book, Final Nephilim. How do we see the documentary? Sure. Uh, it's available on DVD at judgmentofthenephilim.com. It's also available uh, in digital on demand on Vimeo. You can find the links to that, either search it on Vimeo or just go to the website and click on the documentary on judgmentofthenephilim.com. And there's a link that can take you to the digital version as well. All right. We, we actually covered quite a bit of ground in that, that first segment. Um, so I just want to drill down on a couple of aspects here. One is getting back to Genesis 6, the invasion of the Nephilim uh, to take these daughters of uh, man and and create these hybrids, uh, which were, of course, giants. Now, there's some dispute about whether they were actual giants. Where does that where is that dispute? Is it in the in the translation from the Hebrew or why do some biblical scholars dispute that they were actual giants? I think it's just uh, uh, the resistance to uh, acknowledge something, the supernatural aspects of Scripture. That's all there is. You know, when you look uh, at the testimony in uh, Numbers chapter 13, for example, when Joshua sends the, ten, the 12 spies and they say that we were as grasshoppers in their sight when they saw the sons of Anak. They saw three giants, right? And this was two weeks after the Exodus miracles, the plagues that God brought. God literally manifested before them and destroyed the most powerful empire on the planet, the Egyptian armies. And then two weeks later, they saw three Nephilim giants in the promised land and thought, God can't save us. Then you can look at even the, the height of Goliath, who was six cubits in a span, probably eight to nine feet. Or in the book of Amos, for God himself speaking about the Amorite kings who were Nephilim, uh, Og of Bashan and Sihon, God says in the book of Amos, their height was as the height of the cedars. So I think there's enough biblical evidence to show that they were of supernatural size and strength. And so do we know how how quickly these hybrids basically uh, took over the, um, the ancient world? I mean, how do we have any any handle on the, on their numbers, uh, where they lived, etc.? 
Yeah, sure. I think I think that, you know, when you look at I think from Scripture as well as uh, from the apocryphal text that in the days of the patriarch Jared. So you're talking about a couple of centuries before we see Noah introduced in, Janu- in Genesis chapter six is when this incursion took place. And, uh, you know, we see by the time Noah is introduced in Scripture, God says that all flesh had corrupted itself. So so my, my reading of the text is that the Nephilim had overrun the world. They had taken the world over. The earth was filled with violence. And three times in Genesis 6, God says that all flesh had corrupted itself. So they had overrun humanity to the point that there was basically very few to any human beings left who were purely tamim, which is the word used to describe Noah, meaning perfectly human, without blemish, physically, genetically. And so uh, certainly by the days of Noah, which is why God to put a prohibition and said that he would only allow 120 years left on earth, um, they were close to wiping out pretty much all of humanity. That's why only eight people were even on the ark. So they came incredibly close to fully corrupting uh, the human race and genome. And, and so how how did the, the Satan and the Nephilim uh, or, well, Satan's plan to corrupt uh, mankind, how did they believe that would forestall the coming of the seed of the woman, Jesus? Sure. I think that because the Messiah was prophesied to be a human, it wasn't going to be a legion of angels, going to be a human child. I think the I think Satan's plan was to either destroy that child or corrupt human humanity to the point that we'd be something other than image bearers of God, that if we were not fully human anymore, then we could no longer be redeemed. I think it was about disqualifying us genetically, because if you think about salvation, our salvation is spiritual and physical. Our bodies matter. We're, even though we receive a new body, there's a there's a physical aspect to our our redemption. And we're even called a part of the body of Christ. So I think that if we could, if Satan could corrupt our genetics we'd then just be disqualified. The Messiah couldn't even be born. If all flesh were corrupted, that would include the animals, would it not? A- absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's amazing when you look at, uh, you know, the, the, the writings of uh, church theologians from the first and second centuries, like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, they allude to the fact that when you look in Greek mythology and see creatures like the Minotaur, the Centaur, that are half bull, half man, half horse, half man, that these were all based on what took place in Genesis 6, that the animals themselves were also a part of this genetic hybrid hybridization program that the fallen angels were carrying out. So uh, I've brought this up a number of times over the years. Uh, it's, it's always perplexed me how the God of the Old Testament would order the Israelites to go into villages and smite entire villages, every man, woman, and child. And that does, you know, does not sort of equate with the loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. But it does make sense if what we're talking about are entire villages comprised of, of Nephilim, right? Is that is that why he ordered all of that smiting? Precisely. And this is so important. This is why understanding the supernatural Genesis 6, uh, supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 is so important because it, all of a sudden the wars in Canaan make sense. Because these were, what I lay out is that when you look at scripture's details, these were targeted offenses. They were targeting seven specific nations that were all the descendants of Canaan 
who I believe was the the, the forefather of the post-Diluvian giants, and is about eradicating the remnant of the Nephilim after the flood, the Nephilim giant that we that we see in the Promised Land, the sons of Anak, Goliath. Uh, the other giants there. So this is what, so it, rather than it being God acting irrational and just arbitrarily committing genocide, it was a rescue. It was preserving humanity from this contamination and from losing our only chance at redemption. So I'm guessing that at a certain point, you know, you had the fallen angels, they, they with human women, they produced giants, and then maybe those giants would intermarry with other humans uh, so gradually, you know, maybe they became smaller in stature, but they still contained uh, fallen angel blood. But let's say, you know, four, five, six generations removed from that, and you're the child of, uh, and you're one of your ancestors is Nephilim, and you've got a little bit of of um, fallen angel blood in you. Does that mean that you are beyond redemption? Well, I, you know, I I, I don't. I don't think so. I think that, you know, what we see in Scripture is that basically by the time of the, the reign of King David, that that's and his mighty men, his elite soldiers, who they kind of they vanquished the final giants mentioned in Scripture. And from that point on, you see two things. One, after the, the last giant uh, Nephilim in, in the Bible is described, is it's just called the Egyptian. And he's killed by one of David's mighty men. And the very next chapter— Satan himself is a Satan tempted David to take a census. So it was almost like now that his hybrids were gone, the devil himself had to spring into action to try and attack Israel. The second thing we notice is that from that point on, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are no longer any commands to wipe out or smite whole nations or attack people. That offensive command from God to do what's called the karem in Hebrew, the ban to eliminate cultures, that's gone. So I think that that. Uh, at least from God's perspective, the Nephilim genes uh, and DNA was wiped out to the point that it was no longer a threat. So there's no longer a need for that type of offensive war. So this attempt by uh, Satan to corrupt the entire human uh, bloodline to thwart uh, the birth of uh, the Savior, Jesus Christ, that obviously is thwarted by God through the flood where, you know, he basically he he hit the big reset button, not Klaus Schwab's reset button, but basically decided let's, we're going to get everybody out of the pool and we're chlorinating and we're going to start over again. Um, so then what's the, what's the next strategy? Uh, that one failed. What's Satan's next end game? Sure. The next end game is the, the final Nephilim, the Antichrist. And what his purpose is, is uh, it's it really again tied to prophecy. You know, Jesus said to Israel at his first before before his crucifixion, he said, "You shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord." So, the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is is inextricably linked to the end times redemption of Israel. That Israel will have to turn and acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. And Zechariah says, you will look upon him as one, as a son who was pierced. So they're going to realize that he was the Messiah, that, that Jesus who was crucified on the cross 2,000 years ago is the son of God. And they will repent and there will be a believing remnant. But And that is what will trigger the return of Christ. This is the testimony of prophecy. And so 
the Antichrist is trying to stand in between that and and lure Israel into worshiping him. He is Satan's false messiah who will come to try and to deceive. You know, this is what the scripture calls the strong delusion to deceive Israel into believing that this is the this is the messiah when it's the Antichrist. And once again, if not deceive them, corrupt them uh, via the mark of the beast. All right, that's where we'll uh, pick up on the other side. We'll take another time out. Ryan Peterson, the final Nephilim, stays with us back with more of our conversation right after these. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If you have questions and comments for Ryan Peterson, just uh, keep your powder dry, as I like to say. We will get to those in the second hour, and our live stream producer, Ryan White, will kind of curate those for me and and put those in order. And then I will uh, I'll get to as many of your live stream questions uh, as we possibly can. So we were talking about how uh, the the uh, the first plan to thwart the arrival of uh, Jesus Christ failed after the uh, the flood judgment. So then the second uh, game was, okay, so Jesus is coming again. We have to forestall that by, what, dis- uh, destroying the state of Israel or preventing, actually, no, not destroy the state of Israel, but preventing the reconciliation of all things and prevent is- Israelites from crying out and accepting Jesus the second time. They, they rejected him the first time. The second time, they get another chance. So then they have to, they, or he, rather, Satan has to insert a usurper into the mix, right, and distract Israel and prevent them from recognizing the real Messiah. So we have this concept of the false Messiah. Do I have that right? Exactly. Exactly. When the Antichrist comes onto the scene, uh, the testimony of Scripture is that he will appear to be their deliverer. He's going to appear to be the uh, savior that they and leader they've been waiting for. He's going to restore temple worship. You know, this is the testimony in the book of Daniel. It says that there will be a sacrifice and oblation in the temple. We see the the goods in Revelation 17 and 18 that are being sent to Mystery Babylon. It talks about... Uh, Fabrics, purple, scarlet, cinnamon, gold, ivory, all of these are specific items you will see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus used for temple worship. And they're sent in abundance. They're shipped in abundance from all all over the world. So he will appear to be a a benevolent uh, Jewish messiah. And, of course, at the midpoint, uh, once he's lured uh, the world into believing in him, he will then betray them and declare himself to himself to be God. You know, as we see, you know, going into the temple and proclaiming himself to be God and abandoning any pretense of being a messiah for them at all. Uh, and he will also wage war against Israel's enemies to make it look like he is Israel's friend when, of course, he will ultimately betray Israel. So some people during the Trump administration suggested the, that the Abraham Accords um, was was part of this false peace. But it but but first um, the Antichrist pretending to be the Messiah will will make war against Israel's neighbors. Does this necessarily mean I mean that that the Antichrist will be uh, 
a, a politician in Israel or could he be from the United Nations or where do you think, what theater will he come from? Yeah, I think he could be, a, I think those are the only two options, that either he's a leader uh, of the government of Israel or he's a leader of a body like the United Nations where he could have the authority to do take that type of action. Because again, uh, as you stated, in addition to the religious revival that he's going to institute for the Israelites, he's also going to wage war against against Israel's neighbors. So this is going to be the time. This is what Daniel chapter eleven says that he's going to the, the liberate essentially the Middle East to, to of of the the centuries long enemies of Israel. And of course, that will be another deception to make them think that he is their savior. And he's going to build the third. He's going to order the construction of the third temple. Definitely. So, you know, uh, Daniel chapter nine is a very the prophecy of Daniel nine, the 70 weeks prophecy is a very complex prophecy. And like, for example, some people think that when it says that he will, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant. Many people think that refers to a peace treaty. I don't I believe that the covenant, the term covenant in the Old Testament almost universally refers to the Mosaic covenant. And so and that chapter speaks of another temple, that there'll be sacrifice and oblation in the temple. You get to. uh Daniel 11, Daniel 12, it tells you that the time of the from the time of the cleansing of the temple. So, again, there's clearly going to be a third temple that the Antichrist will set up and allow Levitical priestly worship for the first three and a half years of the seven year Great Tribulation. One would one would uh, expect, though, that uh, the construction of the third temple would would cause yet another war uh, because, you know, the. the um, uh, the mosque uh, there, the um, uh, the remnants of the second temple, and so forth. It's such disputed uh, territory that any attempt, and there, and also right now, my understanding is that that uh, in Israel, I mean, they have no desire to build a third temple because they understand that what that would what that would entail, and and that it would cause so much strife. Um. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, correct. Definitely. Uh, the, the current, that I'd say that for the most part of Israel, like, that is the current uh, situation and feeling about a third temple. And certainly it would cause an immediate conflict. But again, we have to understand that the Antichrist, it says that in Scripture, he's going to come in with all lying signs and wonders. So he's going to present himself in a way that no leader has to Israel since Jesus Christ was on the earth. And so when he, and I think that's what's going to over is going to win them over. And in terms of the conflict with the Arab Muslims by putting the temple in, I think there will be a conflict. And in, and again, the book of Daniel says he's going to overwhelm the, the enemies of Israel. So I think there will have to be military conflict to set up that temple, but ultimately he will plant his tabernacle between the seas. And so and so he will have that temple built. And, and, and at the same time, while wiping out Israel's enemies, and also presenting himself supernaturally, because he's going to be have supernatural occult powers via the devil. Uh, last question, and then we'll head into another break. This was a short segment. Doesn't the Antichrist have to convince uh, not just uh, the Jews that he is their long-awaited Messiah? Doesn't he also have to convince the world's Muslims uh, that he is the 12th Imam? Doesn't he have to convince the world's Buddhists that he is uh, is it the compassionate Buddha? He has to convince Christians that he is, you know, uh, our Messiah. Does, how is he going to? How is he going to do? Be all things to all people? 
Sure. I think that takes place at the midpoint. And I think that this is where, you know, again, in I get into detail on this in, in the final Nephilim that he the thing that wins the world over is in Revelation 13, verse four, when he suffers a deadly wound, he will actually be killed and the world will know this and see him come back to life. I'm going to jump right in here. Point. Pardon the interruption, Ryan. Yep. We've got to take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll pick up right on that point. Ryan Peterson, the final Nephilim right here uh, on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Brian Peterson stays with us. The final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com, and you can screen the uh, the video, or you can purchase, rather, the DVD at judgmentofthenephilim.com, uh, the, the, the video, the documentary that kind of serves as a... Uh, a nice accompaniment piece to uh, the book, The Final Nephilim. So we were talking about the uh, the Antichrist and how he will have these supernatural powers, uh, which will help him to uh, uh, manipulate and convince the masses that he is the Messiah. So, uh, and I was saying that he's going to have to be, be all things to all people. He'll have to be the 12th Imam to the Muslims and the compassionate Buddha to the Buddhists and and um, the, the Messiah to the Jews and the Messiah to, to Christians and so forth. And uh, you were saying that sort of his, his Lollapalooza trick that's, that he's going to use to convince everyone is basically his own resurrection, which is a total you know, mockery of the real resurrection. So tell me about that. It involves a mortal head wound. Exactly. He will receive a, a mortal wound to the head and the world will be clearly aware of this. And he will come back to life. It is truly a, a, a satanic mimicry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because you see that the testimony from Revelation 13, verse 4, is that's when the world says, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? That's what wins the whole world over to see him as God, see him as the Messiah. And then let's not forget also that he's not alone, that the, that the Antichrist is also joined by the false prophet who will be the religious kind of prime minister winning people over to worship and pointing people to worship the Antichrist. And one deal, one detail about the false prophet we, we don't discuss Enough, I think, is the fact that he has the power to call fire down from heaven, which all through the Old Testament was a sign of God's approval. God would send fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice. He did it at the dedication of the temple during Solomon's time. He did it at the the announcement of the birth of Samson. Is numerous times that was a sign of God's actual approval of something and the false prophet will be able to do this before the world so there'll be many lying signs and wonders to win over not just the jews but also the the muslims the buddhists the atheists like i always say there are no atheists in the great tribulation so these supernatural signs will win over people of all religions this um lieutenant if you will of the antichrist uh is he kind of a the the, the converse of john the baptist like a forerunner? Exactly, yeah. So I think he's a he's a he's a, a converse of John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit, right? They form a satanic trinity, you know, the Satan being the father, Antichrist being the son, and the false prophet being the Holy Spirit. But yes, but just as John the Baptist pointed people 
to Christ. That is what the false prophet is here to do. He's going to use miracles. And he says that he he has horns of a dragon, but he speaks as a lamb. So he's going to use persuasive speech, persuasive sermons, and supernatural power to point everyone to worship and eventually even make the image of the beast. So he's also going to be aided and abetted by um, the apostate rebels, right? They're going to be released uh, from the abyss where they were um, after they were destroyed in the flood and and um, balked in this bottomless pit. They're going to be released. Um, and this is going to coincide with the sounding of the fifth trumpet in Revelation. Is that right? Exactly. And the fifth trumpet, I believe, is the midpoint. That is the so at the point that the Antichrist suffers this mortal wound and then comes back to life. I believe that coincides with the opening of the bottomless pit, the abyss that we see in Revelation chapter nine at the fifth trumpet, when the star falls from heaven, which I believe is Satan and is able to give given the key to the pit to open it and then these beings they're called locusts but i believe these are the these are the return of the sons of god of genesis 6 who've been locked in the abyss under change of darkness for millennia now they are released and they are going to torment the unsaved world but at the same time again when we think of this concept of this repetition in the scroll of time it's like the flood the end times flood is going to be you're going to have fallen angels coming from the abyss, but also you have the rebel angels that remained in heaven who did not commit the Genesis 6 sin and the devil, they are cast out of heaven uh, permanently. So you have, just just as in the days of Noah, you had the waters coming from the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. You're going to have angels coming from heaven and fallen angels coming out of the abyss. And uh, one amazing detail I point to is Hippolytus in the, the oldest extant writing on Revelation. It's called the Treatise on Christ and Antichrist, written in 202 AD. Hippolytus writes this scene, says, about these angels coming down from heaven. It says, imagine them bathed in beautiful light, levitating above the earth, singing with beautiful angelic voices, and appearing to be benevolent, kind beings, and pointing the world to say, here is your Messiah, and it's the Antichrist. Uh, Does that parallel, perhaps, uh uh, something to do with I don't know UFO disclosure. This will be this will be uh, sort of masked. This uh, fallen angel invasion will be masquerading as uh, uh, UFOs and ETs coming here to save us from ourselves. Exactly. I think that if there's a if there's ever an opportunity for the the full manifestation of the UFO phenomenon, it's going to be at that point when those angels are coming down from heaven. Because we don't know how they're going to present themselves. And if, you know, Hippolytus was inclined to believe they're going to be benevolent. And what if they just say, yes, they're benevolent beings, but they say, we're from another planet. We seeded you on this planet 7,000 years ago, and now we've returned to help you advance to your next stage of evolution or something of that sort. I think that's the window for the devil to really use a UFO alien scenario to further deceive the world. So – Here's something that's always confused me, Ryan, and, and I'm glad you're here because I hope you can sort this out for me. So Satan is cast out of heaven, and, and he comes down to earth, and he's got the key to the bottomless uh, pit, and he unlocks the uh, the prison cell. And so we have all of the uh, apostate rebels coming up. Uh, not that they're not the Nephilim; they're the I guess the forefathers of the Nephilim. They're coming up from below. You've got the fallen angels coming down from from above. So Antichrist has this immediate army, 
But I thought that Satan was cast out of heaven long before that. Yeah, no, no, he 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 was not. He was not, and we and we see examples of this uh, in 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 the book of Job, right? We see in Job chapters one and chapter two that Satan can appear before the throne of God. It says he appears before the throne of God with the sons of God, the Benai Ha Elohim, that he's there speaking to God, and God says, "From where have you come from?" He says, "Going to and fro in the earth." So he still has access on, on God in his wisdom has allowed the devil uh, access into heaven to speak to him. And in fact, it seems like he spends a great deal of time there because in Revelation 12, when he's cast out, it says that he's the accuser of the brethren who stands before God accusing believers day and night. So he spends a great deal of time in heaven when he's not roaming the earth. Ah, OK, so then but it was Satan in the garden. Uh, why wouldn't God have kicked him out long before uh, if he saw, you know, that he was already hatching this big scheme? Sure. I think ultimately that God is demonstrating his plan of salvation and his word being true, not just to humanity, but to all the angels. I believe that what's we're in the midst. Humanity has been thrust into a conflict that predates us. And I think what God is doing, he's allowing these events to play out the devil to work his plan while God works, shows that his way and his word is true for millennia. So so even the devil being allowed into heaven, even the devil being allowed to to be to live at all, not just being cast to the abyss, to still operate in the earth and corrupt and tempt Humanity. I think it's all about God showing, proving something. And we get hints of this in Scripture where it says that when it comes to our salvation, that these are matters that the angels are looking into. So I think that ultimately God is proving, one, that his word is true, and that, two, that Satan's way will never work in the end. And also maybe God lived by the credo, keep your enemies closer. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the, the, the fallen angels of Genesis 6 that came down, were they cast out or did they come down on their own uh, – their own volition. I believe they came on their own volition. And I think that the 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 attempt they just chose again out of lust. It says that they saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they uh, abused obviously their authority by taking human women as wives. And I think what's interesting is that to show the severity of their sin, think about the fact that the devil is still free to roam and enter heaven, but those angels were locked away immediately to never see the light of day until the Great Tribulation. All right. Now you've provided a great deal of uh, clarity for me. Thank you for that. That timeline has always uh, confused me. So the other thing, we just got a, a couple minutes here before we break at the top of the hour, and uh, Ryan Peterson stays with us into hour two, and we'll open up the, uh, the phone lines as well, and we'll take questions from the uh, YouTube live stream. And that is, it's... Um, it's interesting. You talk about these uh, parallels or, or ripples and re repetition, uh, these locusts emerging from the pit. They look like locusts uh, that were locked away. Um, and then this, the smoke coming up. There's also the, the parallels between this and the plagues of Egypt. Absolutely. In, in fact, I, I have a chapter called the second exodus in the book because the Great Tribulation really is a dynamic repetition of the exodus. You have the, the locust beings. You have the darkness of the smoke that comes out. You have water turning to blood. You have um, uh, sores that appear on the skin of those who have, ta have taken the mark of the beast. So it's really God, again, 
again, showing this dynamic quantum repetition, the scroll of time playing out where, again, Justice Farrell was judged. The Antichrist is going to be judged in a similar manner and defeated uh, by the Lord. All right. Hour two coming up. Ryan Peterson, the final Nephilim and uh, your questions and comments. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuber Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Brian Peterson stays with us, the final Nephilim. Nephilim, uh, or sorry, judgmentofthenephilim.com, judgmentofthenephilim.com. Ryan White is our live stream producer, and Carlos Kajina is our technical producer. Check out my live stream channels or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. My Rumble channel is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. The website is strangeplanet.ca. So we are talking uh, a biblical prophecy and uh, the role of the Nephilim and uh, the Antichrist in end times. So we were talking about the um, the apostate rebels, the sons of God, being released from the abyss. This is going to happen right at the midway point of the tribulation after the Antichrist suffers this mortal head wound and is going to convince the masses that he is uh, the uh, the Messiah with this sort of mock resurrection incidentally um is that going to be that that's going to be seen on live television right in other words uh, everyone's going to be able to witness this does the bible even hint you know at the advent of live television it does i think so and i think that we see that example of that in revelation chapter 11 with the death of the two witnesses so you know god will have these two witnesses who will be preaching uh, for the first three and a half years. And at that turning point, again, at the fifth trumpet, when the Antichrist turns into the beast, the fully satanically energized false Messiah who declares himself as God, he kills the two witnesses. And it says the whole world sees their bodies lying in the streets. And then, of course, they are resurrected 
three days later and, and, and are taken up to heaven. But it's amazing that, you know, again, you think you're talking about the revelation, I believe, was written in circa 96 AD. And yet John is writing that the world will witness and see their bodies to the point that everyone starts sending gifts to each other, celebrating their deaths because they want these preachers of the gospel to go away. And who, and who are the two witnesses? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so I am I, not uh, dogmatic, but I think that uh, I, I actually I lean towards uh, – Joshua, the high priest in Zerubbabel. Um, but I'm not dogmatic in that question. I think Moses and Elijah, who are often selected as two witnesses, are very uh, likely candidates as well. i uh, sorry. So Joshua and who would, who would the other one be? Uh, Zerubbabel, who is, uh, yeah, the governor. I think there are prophecies we find in the book of Zachari- Zechariah and Haggai that point to both of them having a role with the temple in the end times. And they're both called olive trees that stand before the Lord, which is a reference to that we see in Revelation to the two witnesses as well, being olive trees and candlesticks, metaphorically speaking, uh, before the Lord. So I find that language consistency very interesting. So I lean towards those two being the two witnesses. Uh, I want to come back, uh, step back for a moment. We'll come back to, you know, Armageddon and, um, Gog and Magog and so forth, but I, I just want to talk about um, you, you talk about types in 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 uh, the final Nephilim types, the Antichrist types, or the Antichrist type, or there are there are Christ types uh, that are in the the Old Testament. Um, I'm not sure if Melchizedek would be would qualify as a Christ type, um, but there are also the converse. There are types of the of Antichrists. In the um, in the Old and the New Testament, um, one such is Judas in the New Testament. You talk about Judas as being an antichrist type. Tell me more about that. Well, of course, we know Judas his his common story being the disciple who betrayed Jesus. But when you look at some of the details about his life, you see some sinister connections to the antichrist. First off, in Luke twenty two. Judas is the only person in the Bible who is possessed by Satan. It says that Satan indwelled him in the moments before he went to go betray Jesus to the, to the Pharisees and the Roman authorities. We look at some of the names that Jesus calls Judas. He calls him in John 17, the son of perdition, a title that the Apostle Paul specifically uses for the Antichrist in 2 in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus also said, referring to the disciples, referring to Judas, he said, have I not chosen you 12, but one of you is a devil. And when we look at the Greek there for that, a devil, diabolos, that is the definitive article. He calls him the devil. Again, it's something only used for Satan. And then the one thing I point out that's not as well known uh, is that in the Old Testament, there were actually prophecies about Judas. In Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are picking a replacement for Judas, because he had killed himself, of course, after he betrayed the Lord, the Apostle Peter quotes two prophecies from the Psalms that he says are about Judas. And one in particular, Psalm 109, says, in reference to Judas, set up a wicked man and put Satan at his right hand, referring to Judas. And when you think about the Antichrist, it's really Satan who's at his right hand, giving him his power, his seat, his authority. So there's a real mysterious, sinister connection between Judas and the beast. Interesting. Um, we, we talked about uh, Satan and and uh, his attempt to uh, thwart the arrival of, of 
the seed of the woman in in the in uh, the very beginning in Genesis. Then there is the um, later there is the attempt to uh, insert a false messiah to prevent Israel from um, basically crying out for or recognizing Jesus when he comes the second time. But in between, of course, there is the the uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and. Judas being used to that end by by Satan as an antichrist type, um, but Satan not realizing that that getting Jesus on the cross wasn't the end of it; it's actually a trap. Can you talk exactly. about a little bit about that? Exactly, of course. And you know, we see that in the New Testament it says that had they known that the truth of God's plan, they would have never crucified him. But yeah, it was all a setup. That, you know, here you have Judas. And if you think about, it, again, as a foreshadow, he's presenting himself as a disciple. Think about that when Jesus, even at the, the Last Supper, days before his crucifixion, Jesus told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they had no idea it was Judas. So he was really tricking everyone. He was a deceiver like the Antichrist. And his plan was to attack and kill God. And again, we look at Revelation 16, Armageddon, that the Antichrist is going to gather the world's armies to literally fight against God, that he believes he can actually fight God and win in combat. And so, uh, you know, the parallels and the foreshadows here are just pretty stunning. But I, I was thinking along the lines of, no, but that that uh, God, uh, of course, anticipating this move, I mean, it's like he's playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers. We've heard that exactly. so many times. But, but um, Jesus obviously knew Judas would betray him from the beginning of time. Uh, so he let Ju- Judas, he allowed Judas to betray him because it was God's plan to get Jesus up on that cross. And, and, and so it was, it was Satan actually that was being falling into this trap. Exactly. It was all it was all a trap. And and again, prophesied. Right. We look at Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. And this is the mystery of prophecy is that it's hard to decipher. But God, it's, it's previewed that he was going to suffer. And so Satan, of course, not realizing this, went full bore to try and have the Lord executed. But it was all a setup, for, as you said, from the beginning. The plan was ex- in existence from the foundation of the world, right? And even this, and even in Revelation, we see Jesus referred to as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So this plan was in motion before Satan even had a chance to realize what was taking place. Another Antichrist type uh, in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar. Explain. Sure. Well, you know, we see many parallels here. First, he was the king of Babylon. Uh, You know, the end times capital city of the Antichrist is called Mystery Babylon the Great. Uh, And then we see in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar uh, erects a golden statue of himself that must be worshipped under penalty of death. And again, this is a clear foreshadow and repetition of the image of the beast, which the false prophet will get the world to build. And this image that must be worshipped of the Antichrist under penalty of death. And when you look at the dimensions of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, we see that it was 60 cubits tall, six cubits wide, and six instruments played to signal when it was time to worship him as a god. And of course, this is a an allusion to 666, the number of the beast, the number of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. And uh, I think we see an even greater foreshadow in Daniel 4 when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this tree 
that's cut down and Daniel tells him the tree is you. You need to repent. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do this. And God punishes him by him turning into a literal half beast, half human hybrid. He, he says he grows claws, feathers, his hair gets long and he lives like an animal for seven years. Very similar, again, to the beast of Revelation. The Antichrist is called a beast, but he's a man. He's the number of a man, but he's a beast. Revelation is showing the dual nature of him because he's a hybrid. He's half fallen angel, half human, and he rules for seven years. So um, very powerful foreshadows there. Uh, did we miss any other? Um, oh, any other Antichrist types? Uh, well, certainly uh, Goliath as well, right? When you ah. even think about the uh, the, 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 the dual between David and Goliath, you have David, of course, who is the ancestor of the Messiah. Jesus is called the son of David, battling the Nephilim for the fate of Israel. Remember, Goliath said, if I win this battle, you're all my slaves. So it's again, this is a true another preview and type we see of the war between Christ and Antichrist. The Antichrist wants to enslave Israel to prevent Christ's return. And of course, uh, how is Goliath killed? With a mortal wound to the head, one shot to the head, and he he dies like the Antichrist as well. Fascinating. Oh, I, that's true. I never I th- never thought of that. That uh, had that that uh, battle between David and Goliath gone south, had gone the other way, since Christ uh, comes through the line of David, that would have forced that would have forestalled the the arrival of Christ because the line of David would have ended right there and then. Exactly. All right. So I'm um, going to take some questions from the uh, the YouTube live chat. So Ryan White, if you could start curating those for me. And uh, those of you in the YouTube live chat, if you just put a uh, question at the beginning of your comment, that, that makes it easier for Ryan to, to, uh, to spot those, grab them, and then put them into the, uh, uh, into the comments here for me. And uh, YY Anella asks – uh, where did the post-flood giants come from? How did they survive the flood, Ryan? Sure. So I think the uh, I believe the Nephilim DNA passed through on the ark, in particular through the wife of Ham. And what I demonstrate is that when you look at all the post-Diluvian giants, they can all be traced back to one person, Canaan who, of course, was the son of Ham, and that they, they, all the the seven nations that are listed in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy for the Israelites to conquer, the Girgashites, the Hivites, they're all descendants of Canaan. So I believe that's how uh, the Nephilim DNA survived. Ah, okay. Uh, let's see. What do we have next? Uh, Chuck asks, what is the truth about the Nephilim in four-corner in the four-corner area of the United States. I'm not sure what Chuck means. Does that make any sense? The four-corner, that would be Colorado, but Utah. Not sure what the four corners are exactly, but what the truth about the Nephilim in the four-corner area of the United States. That I'm not um, completely sure about. I am familiar with some of the mounds. That are, so I know they were found in Ohio. That's not a four-corner state, obviously, but I know there is some... Uh, there's some thought about a presence of Nephilim in, Amer- in North America, the continent, at some time, but that particular area I'm not as familiar with. Someone had mentioned, um, I'm trying to remember who, on this program years ago, and that was that um, Mount Hermon uh, is on the same latitude. If you draw a line um, west you know, from Mount Hermon, where the fallen angels first gathered, all the way over to Roswell, New Mexico, 
the uh, the site of the uh, infamous UFO crash in 1947. It's it's on the same exact degree latitude. Have you heard that before? I have heard that. I have heard that. And and I, and, and you know, I, I think scripture supports uh, certain locations having supernatural properties. And so uh, the area I look to the most, I think, in scripture though, is the Jordan River. I think the Jordan River. I actually call the Jordan River the Area Fifty One of the Bible. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, because there there's so many supernatural instances, uh, incidents that take place there. So you can look at. Uh, the the Israelites, of course, crossed over the Jordan River. It parted like the Red Sea did. Uh, you have Elijah who was fed supernaturally by ravens at the Jordan River. He was raptured to heaven when he was went up to heaven in the chariots of fire. That was at the Jordan River. Uh, Naaman, the Syrian uh, war war commander, he was healed of leprosy by dipping himself in the Jordan River seven times. And then I also point to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, took place at the Jordan River. And at the time of the baptism, you have the heaven opening again, a portal, the, the, the heavenly dimension opened. God, the father spoke from heaven. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove uh, and, of course, came down on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God was able and people could audibly hear God, the father speaking from heaven. So you have it again, the dimensions open to each other. And even the etymology of the name Jordan actually means the place of their descent, the place of their going down. So I believe that was a place of angelic arrival on Earth in uh, in the ancient world. Oh, fascinating. I didn't know that. All right. Rene Image asks, is there a connection between Rh negative or O negative blood and ne- Nephilim like they say? So Rh is, I don't think it's an actual blood type. It's a protein marker that a very small percentage of people have. And some have made the some, the connection that that, that Rh marker somehow connected to the uh, the bloodline of the nephilim any thoughts yeah I, I get this connect i get this question very very often and i in my research have not seen any connection and i agree with you it's not an actual blood type it is a protein marker and i, I between that and the the nephilim genetic genetics or nephilim seed um at, at, at all so I, I don't make that same uh connection or correlation well since they came back the the um um uh, the, the nephilim that is um is it do we all have nephilim blood in us likely uh, i don't know if we all do i think there could be traces of it certainly uh in the middle east <laughs> certainly um since they were predominantly in the land of canaan uh and I, but i think now in modern times i think most of what i see in terms of the return is more of the research we see into the human genome and genetic manipulation CRISPR, gen, uh, designer babies. I think that is where we see the Nephilim because I think it's the spirits that are inspiring the research and money being put into this type of experimentation to basically play God. I think because I believe that I believe the demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim giants. So I believe that's where they're having their biggest impact in modern times right now. Uh, all right. Um, we'll get back to the YouTube live stream a little bit later, but we'll keep uh, keep those questions coming, please. And uh, also the phone lines, 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. And toll free from, well, just about anywhere, 866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. So getting back to um, Antichrist 
types and so forth in the, in the Bible. A name that pops up quite a bit, the Assyrian. Who is the Assyrian? We'll just spend about two minutes and then we'll break and come back and continue. But tell me a little bit about the Assyrian. Sure. The Assyrian, uh, I believe, was the fallen angel who, one, led the Genesis 6 rebellion in Scripture and was punished, but it also has been, uh, is also the title of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. It's the most commonly used title. And so I believe that this is the, this fallen angel was the preeminent fallen angel in the days of Noah. And Ezekiel 31, I think, describes his rise, his fall, his punishment by the flood, dragged to the abyss. But I believe that he will return and indwell the body of the Antichrist at that midpoint when the abyss is open. At the time of his resurrection, he will then be possessed by this spirit, which in Revelation 9 uh, is referred to as Apollyon or Abaddon, that that will be the spirit. The king of the bottomless pit is this angel, and he indwells the Antichrist. So he's both a hybrid as well as being possessed by this spirit of Apollyon and you know, seeks to take over the world as the Antichrist beast. So um, when we come back, I want to talk about there's a particular uh, chapter in the Bible that's it's rather confusing that with regards to the uh, the antichrist it says something to the effect he that was that is not but is i mean <laughs> try to follow that i mean the, the double <laughs> negatives and he that was that is not but is uh, that sounds like a, you know a riddle from batman or something but uh, um, ryan you'll uh, you'll sort that out for us and then we'll talk about um, a more of the uh, the antichrist the different uh, i guess incarnations of the Antichrist. Ryan Peterson stays with us. The books are Judgment of the Nephilim and the brand new one, The Final Nephilim. And uh, there's also a, um, a one-hour documentary that accompanies the book, uh, The Final Nephilim, and you can uh, buy a DVD of that at judgmentofthenephilim.com. Judgmentofthenephilim.com. That's J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T of the Nephilim judgmentofthenephilim.com. Stay with us and we'll get to more of your questions in the live chat as well. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. He that was that is not but is. Help us understand that, Ryan. Revelation 17, uh, it has that's probably one of the most complex prophecies in the Bible. And in this passage, an angel that's been basically describing the events that John the Revelator is seeing in heaven, says he's going to explain the seven-headed beast that represents the Antichrist. So I'm going to explain to you what these seven heads are. And he says there are seven kings, uh, five that were, one is. And says that one is to come. It's a continuous short space of time. And that the Antichrist is the eighth or uh, of these kings. And so that description of him being... The one who was and is not and yet is shows, again, the converse of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. Again, showing Jesus is eternal, his eternality and existing in all times simultaneously. The Antichrist has existed already, but died 
but will come back again. And there are and so I believe that the, that what Scripture is explaining, Revelation seventeen, is that there have been seven. There will be seven incarnations of the Antichrist of the Spirit before you get to the final, the Antichrist we see in Revelation thirteen. Okay, so uh, who were the seven then? Let's let's be, <clears throat> begin at the beginning. Who were the, who was the first Antichrist? Sure. So I start with Nimrod, uh, who, of course, we see who led the Tower of Babel, trying to unite the world in one world government, one world religion, trying to re bring back the days of Noah, reach heaven, you know, and uh, of course, incurred God having to come down personally to stop him. So I, I identify him as the first king. I then look to uh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus as the second king. If you see the Antichrist traits there, um, you know, he wanted to destroy the Messiah. He said, you know, to execute all the Hebrew babies under the age of two and, of course, tried to destroy Israel as a nation altogether. So I think he has lots of clear Antichrist foreshadows. Uh, number three is Nebuchadnezzar, who we've discussed already in detail. Uh, and then for uh, number four, actually look at Sennacherib, who isn't often discussed, but has a number of parallels to the Antichrist. Not only did he tried to destroy, um, is he conquered the northern kingdom, he tried to destroy the southern kingdom, but he actually offered the southern kingdom a new promised land. He said, if you just serve me, I will take you to a new promised land. So he tried to, mm -hmm. to give, stand in the role of God to the Israelites and his his uh, vizier his or his vice regent um, really was very similar to the false prophet. He said to try to, he told them, don't trust God, don't believe what God says, trust in Sennacherib. So he's number four for me. Uh, number five is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, was of the Seleucid Empire, who committed the first abomination of desolation. He sacrificed a pig in the altar uh, of God uh, to, to Zeus um, and was, was a, a, a severe persecutor of the Israelites. And Jesus even references the abomination of desolation, what he did um, in the way he, uh, he was so brutal to the Israelites in prophesying the future abomination of desolation. And then number six, you know, John was told that one is. So that would be the leader who was alive during the time of the book of Revelation, which I believe was 96 AD. And that would be Emperor Domitian, who also uh, proclaimed himself to be a god, like Antiochus Epiphanes, to claim himself, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which meant God manifest. So he not only sacrificed in the temple, he proclaimed himself to be God and demanded worship. Domitian did the same thing. He Every address uh, letter had to be addressed to him as being a god, as being a deity. And he also not only persecuted the Jews, he persecuted the church and actually had the record of history says that he actually executed the relatives of the Apostle James and the Apostle John, who, of course, were half-brothers to Jesus, to try and wipe out any connection to the Messianic lineage whatsoever. And uh, Domitian, uh, you point this out in your documentary, he, he, the Roman Emperor Domitian, his brother the, was his predecessor as Emperor Titus, uh, was the one that leveled the second temple in 70 AD. Exactly. Yes. He destroyed Titus Vespasian, destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and Domitian honored him by making the Arc de Triumph, 
which of course is been replicated all throughout the world. It's one of the most replicated memorials. It's actually a dedication to the destruction of Jerusalem. So again, you see these themes of destroying Jerusalem, uh, eliminating the Messianic bloodline, desecrating the temple. Uh, this is a consistent repetition throughout all these seven, I call them mystery kings throughout biblical history and before we get to the Antichrist. Um, I just want to pick up on something. I want to go back to Nimrod for a moment. And the Tower of Babel and bringing all of the uh, – this was like the world's first empire and the world's first emperor. Um, the Tower of Babel, was there not some sort of technology uh, associated with the Tower of Babel that allowed everyone to speak one, one tongue? Yeah, well, I believe that I believe there was definitely technology, uh, advanced technology involved with the construction, but also I think that there was a supernatural aspect to it. I believe they were trying to access the spiritual dimension. That when that when Nimrod said, "Let's make a tower that can reach unto heaven," that it wasn't just in its height that it was going to go up to the sky, but that it was going to be able to actually penetrate and enter into the spiritual realm. And the thing that I think is the most stunning thing about the Tower of Babel is that God says that if they had completed the tower, that there is nothing that which they imagined which would be withheld from them. They could that literally they'd be able to achieve anything. So there is some serious mystery knowledge that was on the verge of being unlocked by that tower's construction. Something that you point out in the documentary, I did not know, and that the the the, the, the tower was covered in pitch. Explain why. Sure. So they so when they was constructed, they were specifically the builders were specifically told to put cover in pitch and tar, bitumen, the same substance that that Noah used to seal up the ark. It's a sealant to make it waterproof. So they were already anticipating that if God was going to flood the earth again, the tower would not be destroyed because they used the same type of sealant to keep it watertight, so it wouldn't be destroyed again. So they had again a very serious anti-god anti-christ agenda yeah they weren't paying attention though because god said he wouldn't he wouldn't destroy the world by uh, by a flood again so exactly taking notes in school they weren't <laughs> <laughs> precisely okay so uh, nimrod pharaoh nebuchadnezzar sennacherib who was in fact uh, assyrian king of assyria uh exactly. antiochus epiphanes uh domitian that's six so who are the the next two sure so the seventh uh who john was told uh, it was to come and we continue a short space. I believe that seventh is Gog of the Gog-Magog coalition and that war that we see described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And I know that uh, obviously this is a battle to come and he's often described as a political leader. But I think that this is going to be when you look at the description of Gog, one, again, he is trying to attack Israel. Again, Antichrist agenda to attack Israel, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Goliath, like all these predecessors. But also there's an interesting detail where God says about Gog, the Lord says in the, in the uh, King James Version, are you the one I've spoken of by my servants, the prophets? In the Septuagint, it says, you are the one I have spoken of by my servants, the prophets. So this has to be a being who multiple prophets have discussed in the Bible. So to me, that takes people like Vladimir Putin off the board or other leaders like that, um, because they were obviously are not being prophesied in the Old Testament. But when you look at the, this, this spirit of the Assyrian that keeps replicating and, and going and incarnating throughout history, 
he has been spoken of. And so I think God will be indwelled again by this spirit of the Assyrian and be the seventh mystery king. So God would be a supernatural being. Exactly. And if you look again, he, he that, the, if you look at the description of the battle, it's a fairly short battle. He he goes on the march with this coalition and God kind of destroys him immediately. So he only, can, you know, so it kind of fulfills Revelation 17 that he just continues for a short time and then he's taken out. So this um, this gap of several thousand years, really, 2000 years um, between Domitian, the Roman emperor, who was the the sixth um, Antichrist, and then the time between Domitian and Gog, that is referring to that uh, that strange passage in, in Revelation where it says, he that was, that is not. So that, that gap of 2,000 years, that's the period that the Antichrist was not. Precisely. Exactly. And again, showing that he is not the real Christ. He's not the real Messiah because he will be dead for a long, for two millennia now and, and counting. So, yes, I believe that. And he will, but he will come back one final time. Is uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog the same? Uh, actually, I, we always say Gog and Magog, but it should be Gog of Magog, right? Correct. Yes. So the Battle of Gog of Magog is that the same as the Battle of Armageddon, or is it a separate battle? I believe it's a separate battle. So I actually believe it's two battles. I believe that Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39 are describing two battles, but in reverse order. I believe that chapter 38 is describing the battle we see in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the millennium, where the devil makes one final strike and says he gathers the nations, the armies from the four corners of the world, and says Gog, Magog specifically, and launches this attack. And I believe the, the reason why we see that is because in Ezekiel 38, the details were given. It says that Israel is dwelling without walls. It has no security. There is no fences, no walls. It's, it's at peace. And that will only take place during the millennium, where Ezekiel 39 is describing what I believe is the first battle of Gog Magog, which will start right before the seven-year tribulation. It's almost like a false Armageddon, where Again, you have this coalition that will try to attack Israel before the Great Tribulation begins, and they are conquered supernaturally by God. And it, I would not be surprised if the Antichrist tries to take credit for the the, the victory over the first Gog-Magog uh, attack on Israel, and that propels him to be his role of Israel's protector. Uh, interesting. And when you say the, the, the second battle being after the millennium, you're talking about that 1,000 years of peace when God destroys uh, um, Satan and the Antichrist uh, is victorious in the Battle of Armageddon. There's a thousand years of peace. Uh, and then after that 1,000 years, when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, this supernatural entity, Gog and Magog, come back, or Gog of Magog, comes back for one last uh, futile attempt and is, is destroyed once and for all. Exactly. Precisely. Okay, we'll take another time out, come back, and we'll get to some more questions from the live stream for Ryan Peterson, The Final Nephilim. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Let's go to the live stream, and uh, let's see. Sigma6 asks... Ryan, do you have any thoughts on the alien abduction phenomena, especially when it comes to human-alien hybrids? 
Yes, definitely. And I think that the uh, the alien phenomenon just in general, uh, I believe it's a a demon, a demon, a demonological phenomenon that it's a spiritual encounter that they're having, but these spirits are just masquerading as, um, you as aliens from another planet, they're presenting themselves that way. But I do believe there's validity to that. And again, when you think about the demons being the spirits of the deceased, of the deceased Nephilim, many times, many of the accounts from alien abductions deal with genetics, deal with sexual organs, examining, probing, trying to uh, impregnate and things, again, take us back to Genesis 6 and Daniel, of course, the, the prophecy of Daniel 2, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. That's a prophecy of the end times. So I believe that all this is kind of laying the groundwork for what we're going to see in full in the Great Tribulation. Uh, but this time around, this alien or fallen angel human hybrid system uh, or program is not producing giants as far as we know. Right, right, I, I, and I think that they you know, these are, these efforts are not producing giants uh, at, at present. But what 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 may come in the in the Great Tribulation remains to be seen. But no, at present, there, there are not giants being produced out of this kind of uh, genetic experimentation taking place during in the abduction scenario. And and what would be the purpose um, this time if if we look at the alien abduction phenomenon as uh, again. Uh, a return to the days of Noah, fallen angels commingling with the daughters of men. Uh, although sometimes they take men uh, as well. What would be the purpose? Are they if they're if, are they trying to create an army for the Antichrist? Sure, I think it's twofold. I think certainly an army because we know that the Antichrist is going to have a very large army to fight against uh, the Lord with. Um, but also it goes again back to the days of Noah of corrupting. Uh, human genetics. And again, if Israel can't be just deceived into worshiping the Antichrist as God, the devil is going to try again to corrupt them. And I believe the the, the, the major attack on genetics is going to be through the mark of the beast, which I believe will have a genetic component as well. And if you think about what the Antichrist is going to, how he's going to present himself again, once he comes back from the dead, and he says, I have overcome death and people see him as God. You know, he can offer the mark of the beast and say, hey, take this mark. And not only will it help you will allow you to buy and sell, but also it can turn you. It can give you my power. Can you can overcome death as well? And I believe that's the genetic component. And the interesting thing we see is in Revelation nine at that time. It says that men shall seek death, but death shall flee from them. So there's going to be a time of immortality on earth where no one is able to die. Even if they try to die, death is going to run from them. And I believe that's because they take the mark. And at the moment they receive immortality, God is going to punish them so harshly they're going to wish they were dead. That sounds a little bit like uh, when you talk about immortality like the transhumanist movement. Exactly. And I think that's another thing we see uh, today in terms of the, the, the ground being set. You know, we see what the, the billionaire tech moguls, whether it be the heads of Google or Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, Google, all these companies are investing billions of dollars into life extension technology, into seeking and trying to achieve through technology immortality. And so this is a real effort underway. And so... 
Just imagine years from now when the technology is getting closer, but then you have the fallen angels arriving and they keep presenting themselves as aliens. You have the Antichrist literally coming back from the dead. The world is being prepped to for this possibility to see immortality as something that we can really achieve on our own. Uh, there's a, a gentleman, a, a gentleman, huh? I've seen his uh, clips on YouTube and I've, I've played them on my, one of my other uh, shows. His name escapes me, but he is often referred to as one of Klaus Schwab's top advisors. And and he delivers some of the most chilling speeches. Um, he, he's not speaking about economics and, you know, reinventing capitalism and the Great Reset. But he is talking about things like, um, you know, proudly proclaiming that we have hacked the human being. And he's referring to uh, DNA but he's also said some other very chilling things about, you know, um, how the, the soul does not exist. And, and uh, geez, I think that that guy could be a candidate for uh, the next Antichrist. Have you are you familiar with this? Have you seen this person on YouTube? Uh, I'm not sure who you're referring to, but certainly I've heard those ideas. Uh, certainly the ideas of hacking the, the, the human the human genome and becoming homo novus 2.0. And all these ideas, certainly these transhumanist ideas, I've heard many, many times. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this guy, this is coming right out of the World Economic Forum. Uh, let's go back to the YouTube live chat. Um, Helena M. asks, your thoughts on the Shemitah year 5782, any significance to that? Uh, the Shemitah year, that would be uh, like the, the, is that like the Jubilee years? It's kind of like the Jubilee uh, cycle. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm familiar with it. I've heard Jonathan Khan speak on the Shemitah year, but I'm not as familiar with the significance of that particular year. So I, I can't really opine on that one. All right. We'll uh, take one final time out, come back with Ryan Peterson, the final Nephilim and judgment of the Nephilim.com. Judgment of the Nephilim.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. <clears throat> it's uh, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari is uh, the gentleman, uh, t- transhumanist and top advisor to Klaus Schwab and the uh, the World Economic Forum, um, who, who talks about now we have the technology to uh, to hack into the human brain and to hack our DNA, which sounds to me like, you know, as you say, um, make us less human. And uh, that certainly sounds like, you know, at least part of the Antichrist system. Uh, let's see. Let's go back to the uh, the live chat here. Um, Renee Image asks, did God, after destroying the Tower of Babel, said he would not destroy anything humans build anymore to start start all over again? In other words, we are on our own and will be suffering. Not sure if I understand that question. Uh, did that make any sense, Ryan? Yeah, it sounds like it might be something like a similar kind of uh, pledge, like after the flood. I, I don't see that. I know certainly God confused the languages. We weren't going to be able to to assemble as one nation, one just global government anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you look at things like the tabernacle, the temple of God, those are divinely the blueprints for those structures came directly from God. So uh, and even the millennial temple that's described in Ezekiel chapters 41 to 48, which is yet to be built Clearly, God is still involved in helping us construct things for his uh, glory. All right. Um, Ulnar Lysurgus. 
some interesting handles here on the YouTube live chat. <laughs> uh, Ulnar Lysurgus asks, uh, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln mentions giants um, near Niagara Falls. Uh, something, uh, military knowledge of Gilgamesh. Well, I know what he's referring to. When uh, Abraham Lincoln, before he was president, he was touring uh, New York State in the 1850s, I think. He was actually campaigning for another uh, politician, and he mentioned how beautiful the Niagara Falls were and how they were there, you know, thousands of years before. Uh, and then he mentioned something about giant bones inside these earthen mounds that are around, you know, the uh, the Ohio Valley and some, I think, in New York State as well. So some people have suggested he was referring to giants, actual giants. Others have said, no, he was referring to, you know, di dinosaur bones or mastodon bones or something. I'm not sure. Uh, what do you make of that that, that comment by Lincoln? Yeah, I, I can't, uh, you know, I, I think I lean towards it being giants. And, and the, the, that's the amazing thing is that, one, you can see that even in American media, there are articles from the 19th century that talk about skeletons that were found that were giant human skeletons. Uh, in my books, I quote uh, some of the ancient historians who have no skin in the game, who weren't Christians, who were not Jewish, who were Roman historians, some of the most celebrated historians who write and say that they were bones of Nephilim on display in different areas of the Roman Empire. So I think that uh, there is there is some credibility to uh, the presence of giants in antiquity in North America, and particularly, as you mentioned, the mounds that we see in Ohio. Uh, Toby McBallarina. <laughs> Toby McBallarina asks, was Nimrod a Nephilim? In the last days, it will be like the days of Noah. Is that including Nimrod post-flood or only pre-flood? Great question. So there's an interesting description of Nimrod where it says he became a mighty one in the earth, a mighty hunter. In the Septuagint uh, version of the Old Testament, it says, which of course is the oldest existing version of the Old Testament, it says that he became a giant. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's very mysterious it's, it, if he went through a process or something occult, maybe like a ritual that turned him into a giant. It's, I think it's I think it's very possible because certainly he displayed a lot of the attributes that we see with the Nephilim. In fact, Matthew Henry, one of the most who has one of the most famous Bible commentaries, Matthew Henry's commentary. He actually says that Nimrod had the spirit of the fallen angels of Genesis six within him. So uh, certainly, I think there's uh, some some theologians who would agree with that notion as well. What about some of the other, you know, bloody dictators uh, of the last century? Um, Hitler, Mao, um, Saddam Hussein. Some have said that they are antichrist types. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I would agree with that. So uh, while they may not be one of the seven that are described in Revelation 17, the New Testament tells us uh, that there are many antichrists in the world, low, small a antichrists, and the spirit of the antichrist is already at work. And so, of course, you know, when you look at the the the, the, the atrocious leaders you just mentioned and how malicious they were, only the devil could inspire such evil. Um, and, and or a spirit of Antichrist. And so I agree that that you will have even even now you will have in modern times uh, Antichrist foreshadows who are not the Antichrist, but certainly have that same spirit uh, dominating them. 
So how is the Battle of Armageddon going to play out, uh, Ryan? In the, in your documentary, The Final Nephilim, um, I mean, you've got it all mapped out. You know, the exact locations, the towns that are involved, the distance between the two. You know, one coming from, the, um, uh, I guess, Gog and his tribes and, and allies coming, sweeping down from the north and uh, uh, Jesus coming from the south. Uh, just kind of, I know it's difficult to explain that map on radio, but just kind of give us a mental picture if you could. Sure. So so first off is to understand that the Battle of Armageddon is actually a series of battles. And what what we find from scripture is that at the time that what's, what's, what's taking place at Megiddo is a gathering of forces. That's where the Antichrist is going to gather his forces. And when you look in Isaiah chapter 10, there's an amazing chronology that tells you the specific towns that the Antichrist is going to attack and conquer in route to Jerusalem. And these these towns make a, a south by southeast line from Megiddo to Jerusalem. At the same time, when Jesus is, is coming to fight the Battle of Armageddon, he's not coming directly to Israel. He's first going to Edom. And why is that? Because there's a prophecy that we see in Ezekiel that the Israelites, the believing remnant, will be will be protected in the wilderness of Edom for that second three and a half years. And so we see a vision of this in Revelation chapter 12, where it says the woman uh, is taken uh, on eagle's wings to the wilderness for three and a half years to escape the dragon. So, so this is going to be a repeat of the Exodus. The Israelites are going to be exactly where they were wandering during the Exodus before Jesus led them to the promised land. So Jesus will come and get them in Edom and battle the enemy forces on the way to the final battle, which takes place at Jerusalem in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And this is why you see, he says that, that when Christ comes, that he has his garment is stained with blood. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that says he's coming with, again, with who is this? Who is this coming from Edom? And said with blood-stained garments. This is Christ fighting, leading the fight to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where the final battle takes place between Christ and Antichrist at the Mount of Olives. And so in terms of the geography, again, we see this prophecy of the blood from the final battle, it says that the blood flows for uh, uh, 1,600 furlongs, which is 183 miles, which is the exact distance from Edom to Megiddo. So Christ is going to come to Jerusalem, the Battle of Jerusalem, which is where the final fight between Christ and Antichrist happens. He will then conquer the Antichrist in the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and continue to defeat his forces all the way to Megiddo. So the blood will stretch that long distance that's prophesied in the book of Revelation. So um, uh, there'll be uh, Jesus and, and uh, an army of angels. Yes. Will, any, will there be any human combatants involved? There will. And so what will take place is that there will still be some remnant of Jewish people living in Jerusalem. And it says that Judah in the book of Zechariah, that Judah will take up arms and fight at Armageddon. And in fact, what's amazing is you have this also this amazing prophecy of Jesus says that when his feet touched the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is adjacent to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that the mountain will split in two and that the Israelites who are fighting at Jerusalem will flee in between the split mountains. So this is, again, is a repetition of the parting of the Red Sea. It's at that point that the Antichrist will pursue them and be killed 
by Christ, by the spirit of his mouth, by the brightness of his coming, just like Pharaoh was defeated when he tried to follow the Israelites through the parted Red Sea in the book of Exodus. There's that repetition again. Exactly. Uh, so The end is the beginning. The beginning is the end. It all is a cycle. So Christ and his army of angels are going to make pretty short work. It's going to be a fairly short battle, is it? Exactly. The Antichrist will be no match. In fact, the, the, the literal brightness, the divine light of Christ in the spirit from his mouth alone will destroy the Antichrist. And then what happens to the Antichrist? Is he is he like more? Will he will his ultimate punishment be actual physical death or will he just be imprisoned? Yeah, he will be cast into the lake of fire with the false prophet. They're going to be cast alive. So he'll be killed and brought back to life to be cast into the lake of fire alive to be punished forever and he's gone forever but there's something interesting that i think also lends to the fact that he is a nephilim is that satan when satan is captured at armageddon he is locked in a chain and thrown into the abyss the exact same punishment the genesis 6 rebel angels had to suffer for fornicating and fathering the Nephilim. Satan, finally, because he has his Nephilim in the end times, the Antichrist, he also has to serve the exact same punishment that Genesis 6 rebel angels served thousands of years ago in the days of Noah. Mm. And then, of course, we have a thousand years of peace, Christ ruling from Jerusalem, uh, where um, mankind will live hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Not in, We won't be immortal, but we'll live for hundreds of years. Exactly. It's amazing. It's, it's really, again, you see that we see that it's going to be like the days of Noah in the antediluvian era. You see the genealogies where we're told that in the, in the, during this millennium, this thousand years when Christ reigns on earth, it says that, uh, you know, a man who dies at 100 will be cursed. So we'll see the lifespans go back to men and, and women living for centuries. There will also be peace uh, on earth. There will be no more war. The animals will be at peace with humanity. He says that that's this is the time where a child, a baby can sit near a snake or sit near a lion and they will just dwell peacefully. They're no longer carnivorous animals. So Christ is really restoring things to an Edenic level. So, again, humans will die, but they're going to live much, much longer lifespans as it was in the days of Noah. Uh, Ryan, thanks for hanging out these last two hours. I learned a lot. Richard, thank you so much for having me. This is a great time. Ryan Peterson. The Final Nephilim and Judgment of the Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ryan and uh, Carlos back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.